Well, again, good morning. My name is Mark, and what a joy it is to worship and glorify God with you today. I'm going to take a look at our text from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 53 through 72 this morning. If you would listen now for God's Word to us today. Mark writes, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet, even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw him, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow, this fellow He is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, and he said, I don't know this man that you are talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would press it deeply into our hearts this day, that we would be mindful of it and that we would gain 
understanding. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For indeed, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When we read this text, there's a couple of things that kind of jump out at us, a couple of contrasts that we see. On the one hand, we have no clearer picture of man's wickedness than sinful men condemning the sinless Son of God to death. And on the other hand, we have the patience and the love of Jesus standing out as we see Him endure the ridicule and the abuse that He was subjected to in this trial. Also, on the one hand, we have an unfaithful friend giving in to the fear of man and not only not confessing Jesus, but also denying that he even knows him. On the other hand, we see Jesus with boldness confessing before the Sanhedrin that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, which is the confession that sealed his death. Indeed, as we near the crucifixion, every scene that we come to in the gospel accounts seems to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Things that were predicted hundreds of years before now being fulfilled in detail. There are many awesome descriptions in the Old Testament of Jesus He's the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to be a king after the line of David. He's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah says that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But Isaiah says something else that's striking about the Messiah. He says that the Messiah will be a man of sorrows, despised and rejected by men, well acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In the same way, the world despised Jesus. They laid him aside as one having no value. He came unto his own as their Savior, and they did not receive him. This was true throughout his life and throughout his ministry, and it climaxes in his trial and in his crucifixion. We find Jesus today in the text as he stands before the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. This was a body made up of, of 70 men plus the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Jesus stands trial before these men, but in reality, the, the verdict had already been reached. These religious leaders, for quite some time, they, they have desired to put Jesus to death. Over and over again in the gospel accounts, we're told that they are seeking an opportunity to kill Jesus. Now, 
Um, you know, why, why did they want to kill Jesus? Well, on the surface, they had disputes with Jesus, right? They had questions and disputes about the law. The religious leaders positioned themselves as those who were zealous for the law and the traditions and the Word of God. But despite that show, they really just had a deep-seated hatred for Jesus. They wanted to appear as lovers of God's commandments and law, but really they were haters of His commands. And we find Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They are meeting in the house of the high priest. It is very late into the night. It's also during a feast time. These two factors, a feast and late into the night, were ti- was a time when you would never have a trial. But they have determined to kill Jesus. And these religious leaders, they're filled with envy. They envy Jesus. Envy is simply a consuming desire that everybody else be as unsuccessful as you are. Right? Have you ever seen someone else, maybe in your field or doing something you want to do, and they seem to be better at it than you are, and we envy them, right? We wish they weren't so good at that. And here, these men envy Jesus. Crowds fought and clamored to see and to hear Jesus teach. Jesus did many signs and miracles. Over and over again, Jesus got the better of the religious leaders, and they despised him. They felt like they were losing their grip on their power and their status and their authority, and Jesus had to go. And so all this talk in the Gospels about Jesus being a Sabbath breaker or a blasphemer, really these were just kind of a cover to hide their envious hearts. And humanly speaking, that's why they're gathered here late in the night at the time of a feast to put Jesus on trial. And Jesus was being led, as Jesus rather, was being led by the guards to the high priest's house. The text tells us that his closest disciple, Peter, was following along. No doubt Peter loved Jesus. Peter wanted to see where all of this was going. And so he's following, but, but Mark tells us he's following kind of at a safe distance. Jesus is taken in before the Sanhedrin, and at the same time, Peter finds himself in the courtyard, warming himself by a fire. The trial begins. You can tell by the way that Mark relates the story that the religious leaders really have no idea what they're doing. They're way off the script here. They're kind of making this up as they go. Jesus has really done nothing wrong, yet They now have their hands on him. They have their opportunity and they have a sense of urgency. They've got to do something in this moment. They've got to find a charge against him, a charge worthy of death. So Mark tells us they're seeking testimony against Jesus, but it's to no avail, right? The witnesses they have, they're either false witnesses, what they tell is not true, or the various testimonies that they're they're gaining are are not in agreement. They can't get any more than one testimony to agree with another. And so the religious leaders have a big problem here. 
They have no credible charge against Jesus. They have no credible witnesses against Jesus. Deuteronomy 17.6 says that a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. You must have corroborating witness testimony. And so no doubt this is embarrassing to the high priest. He is in a tight spot here. This body, the Sanhedrin, they have already made up their minds about Jesus, about what the outcome of this trial is going to be, and they are diligently searching for a justification, a legal justification or a moral justification for, for what they have already determined to do. And, and in this case, whatever they determine is going to have to be taken to Pilate, the Roman provincial governor, in order for Jesus to be executed. The Jews at this time, they had many freedoms in prosecuting their own laws under, under the Roman occupation, but they did not have the freedom to execute their own criminals. And so they needed to pin something on Jesus that would be of interest to Pilate and to the Roman authorities. They needed Jesus to be seen as a, as a real and imminent threat to law and order. So the high priest stands up and he asks Jesus, are you not going to answer? Are you not going to answer all this testimony against you? And Jesus remains silent. I think they were hoping that maybe in Jesus making a response and seeking to defend himself that he would in some way incriminate himself, but he doesn't answer. And then the high priest asks him, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responds, I am. Man, those are loaded words, the I am. And then Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus doesn't get clever. He doesn't avoid answering this question, but he simply, he simply reveals his identity and he warns them of coming judgment. He tells them who he is and he tells them of the position that he will soon occupy, the right hand, the throne of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews says, after making purification for sin, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and that all things would be put under his feet. This isn't a new revelation about the Messiah. This is all taught explicitly in the Old Testament. These religious leaders would have been very familiar with, um, with, you know, with, with these warnings and these descriptions of the Messiah. Jesus is revealing to them who he is. He's warning them about judgment that will soon come on them. And then we see this, you know, kind of a great contrast going on in this trial. The religious leaders, you know, they see Jesus. He appears to them as someone who has no power. He appears to them as someone who is helpless. Yet the one who appears helpless and powerless will soon sit at the right hand of the throne of God. Soon he will have all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. As the commentator Matthew Henry writes, indeed, the one they now trample upon 
is the same one they will soon tremble before. Wow. So these men involved in condemning Jesus, though they now stand before him as judge, these roles are soon going to be reversed. And the violence they seek to do to Jesus, if they do not repent, will soon be upon their head. You might remember the story from um, the book of Esther, really a wonderful, wonderful book in the Old Testament, the story of the book of Esther. And there was a very bad man in the book of Esther. His name was Haman. And Haman, he wanted to kill a very good man in the book of Esther. His name was Mordecai. And so Haman builds this great gallows there right by his home on which he will execute Mordecai. But what Haman did not know was this gallows that he built for Mordecai was, was the very gallows that he himself would be hung on. The Bible warns that a person reaps what they sow. God will allow no sin or no injustice to stand undealt with. So, the high priest, he's in a tight spot. Instead of considering the weighty implications of what Jesus is saying, he, he instead immediately tears his garment and he pronounces his judgment that Jesus is a blasphemer. And then Caiaphas asks for a verdict from, from this ruling body, the Sanhedrin. And the text tells us they all condemned him as worthy of death. Mark tells us some began to spit on him. They covered his face. They struck him. They told him to to prophesy. So not only is Jesus rejected and condemned, but Jesus is also mocked and he is ridiculed. They abused Jesus. They mocked his claim to be the son of God, the Holy One. And Jesus didn't resist their violence. In In fact, this is likely... When Jesus began to shed his blood for the sin of the world. Jesus is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the king of Israel. He is defenseless, but not, I'm sorry. He is defenseless, but undefending. He is not vanquished, but uncontending. He is not helpless, but he is majestic in voluntary self-submission for the highest purposes of love. Isaiah 50 verse 5 says this about the Messiah, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not resist it. I turned not backwards and I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, why this treatment of Jesus? Why this violence? Well, we know they envied Jesus. They hated Jesus. But why did Jesus have to suffer like that? Well, the answer is simple. The answer of why Jesus had to suffer like that is because you and I have sinned. We have sinned. We have broken God's law. We have broken His commandments. God is holy. We deserve his wrath and his judgment. There's no way around it. God doesn't have to save any person. But if 
he chooses to save, he must do it in a way that doesn't contradict his own, his own justice. And therefore, Jesus, the Son of God, takes our place. It's, it's what theologians call the great exchange. He takes our place. And in this trial, we see this picture of what's going to happen on the cross where the sin of the world is laid upon him and he takes it upon himself. He is said to be the propitiation for our sins. That's kind of a fancy theological word that simply means he was the appeasement for our sins. He was placating God's wrath that was justly due for our sins. He suffered the penalty that we deserved, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. As the beautiful hymn says, we, we sang this last week at 11, uh, the 11 o'clock service. It says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah. What a Savior. So, the trial is over. And this is what has happened to Jesus. He has experienced all of this abuse. And all the while, Peter is still down below in the courtyard. And, and, and if you can imagine it, in that day, in the time of Jesus, at night, it was dark. You know, unless maybe it was a really brightly lit kind of moonlit night. It was very dark at night. There were no street lights. There were no headlights. There were no city lights. There were no flashlights, right? If you were not around a candle or a torch or a fire, I mean, it was dark. You weren't going to see a whole lot or recognize who people were. But Peter, he's standing by a fire. He can be seen. The attention has been on Jesus. The attention has been on the trial in Caiaphas' home, but, but now the trial is over. And a servant girl of the high priest sees Peter. He, he's warming himself by a fire, and she says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Peter denies it, and the rooster crows. Of course, we know Jesus... He had said to Peter that on that very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Remember Peter's response? He had said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then the servant girl accuses him again, and she kind of points out to the bystanders, this man, he's one of them. Peter denies it again. Finally, the whole crowd kind of joins in uh, certainly, certainly you're one of them. I mean, you're a Galilean. And Mark tells us that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself. He began to swear. Now, that doesn't mean that Peter started to, like, use foul language or say cuss words. It means that he was making an oath. He was putting himself under a curse. For example, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul calls a curse on those who would preach another gospel, those who would preach a false gospel. He said, may they be anathema, which kind of means like, may they be damned for preaching a false gospel, right? It's, it's like saying, may they receive judgment for what they're 
for what they're saying. And so Peter's calling down that kind of curse, that kind of oath upon himself. He's basically saying, may God judge me if I'm not telling the truth about not knowing this man. And he doesn't even use the name of Jesus here. He just calls him that man. So Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, disowns him and he fails. And the rooster crows again. And Peter resembles the words of Jesus and he breaks down and he cries. On that night, Jesus had no earthly comfort. He had no one with whom to share his grief. He was condemned by his enemies. He was forsaken by his friends. He suffered alone with no relief. That's what Mark tells us in our text today. What I want to do is to spend the rest of our time just looking at some of the ways that, you know, we can apply this passage, kind of the application of what this means for us. I think as we, as we look at Peter's denial, one of the things we recognize is that like Peter, we are probably weaker than we think, Right? We may feel strong sometimes, but we are probably weaker than we think we are. There's no doubt in my mind that when Peter said those words, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. I think Peter meant that sincerely. He meant what he said, but Peter overestimated himself. He thought he was stronger than he really was. And and this trial that he experienced, you you know, it put him in the balance. And he was found wanting. He failed. And for you and me, if, if we are to endure, if we are to overcome in times of trial, it will only be by the grace and the mercy of God that we can persevere. And and therefore, we must run to him. We must go to God who gives freely of his grace and mercy to help us and to strengthen us in our time of need. Because we need his strength to endure. We are like Peter. We are not as strong as we think we are. I think that's one thing we take away from this. Also, in Peter, we see the grace of repentance, and we see the beauty of forgiveness. Peter breaks down and weeps in sorrow because of his sin. This is what we would say is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, right? And you know, when you, when you read through the Gospels, when you read through you know, any of the Gospel accounts and you see the name of Judas, I mean, what do you think of? You think of Judas' worst sin and his worst failing. Anytime you hear the name Judas, you think of his sin, of betraying Jesus. He's always and forever will be remembered by his betrayal. But then when it comes to Peter, if you read through the gospel accounts, if you read through the, the New Testament letters, I mean, when you see Peter's name, the first thing that comes to your mind is not Peter's denial of Jesus, right? Because he's not remembered by that. Peter turned to the Lord 
in godly sorrow and in repentance, and he was restored. He was forgiven. His sin was wiped away. The Bible says there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Right? He's not remembered for his sin. God does not remember our sins. Praise God for that. Now, looking at the whole passage, you know, and and you go back to what Jesus experienced, we see him suffering at the hands of of wicked and sinful men, and in the suffering of Christ, he, he not only accomplishes our redemption, but he also leaves us an example. Um, but the Bible tells us, I mean, we're not saved. We're not saved by living up to Jesus' example. We are saved from our sins solely by trusting on him. We are saved from our sins by his death for our sins and his resurrection, claiming victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Um, and when it comes to us having peace with God, we take the good that we think we may have. And like the Apostle Paul, we lay it aside as rubbish. And we run to the one. We run to Jesus that we might be found in him, that we might be covered by his blood and his righteousness because that is our only hope that will bring us peace. Finally, I want to consider this. I want to consider about how, how God calls you and, and me to suffer. You know, how, how are we to handle that? How are we to handle being ridiculed by others? Um, not just for our faith, but just in general, right? Being slandered by others, being sinned against by others. How are we to handle that? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.21, he says, to this suffering you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? In our suffering, we're told we must follow in the example of Jesus. Uh, Peter says when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, when violence was, was made against him, he, he didn't threaten. Jesus was abused, but he continued entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. And so, if we're reviled, for whatever reason, we also ought to entrust ourselves to to God and to his judgment. We are called to return good for evil. We are never to avenge ourselves. We are to leave it to the Lord. Jesus says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in the world, we're told not to be shocked by the fiery trials that we may endure. Jesus says that a servant is not above his master. 
We should not be surprised when we are afflicted for any reason, whether it be suffering at the hands of others or just any kind of suffering or health sufferings or whatever it may be. As well, we are to bear up under our, our suffering and to endure it patiently, even to endure it with joy. I like how the writer of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews 12, 3. He encourages us. He says, consider him, consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. When we trust in Jesus, when we look to him in faith, we entrust ourselves to him and it has the effect of helping us to not grow weary and to not lose heart even in difficulty. And we should do this knowing that we have a high priest. We have Jesus who sympathizes with us in every weakness, right? Many times we feel alone in our sufferings, but brothers and sisters, beyond how we may feel, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in every way. He has been touched with every suffering we could experience. He knows, he cares for you. He knows where you are. He knows what you are going through. He does not forget you. Come on. Amen. He doesn't forget you. Right? Over and over again, we're told that God is mindful of his people. He remembers his people. He knows the way of the righteous. He does not forget them. Indeed, God comforts his people. I mean, this is all throughout the scriptures. Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah as the waters subsided. Genesis 30, 22, God remembered Rachel and he listened to her. First Samuel 1, God remembered Hannah and she conceived. Exodus 2, 24, Israel was groaning in slavery. They cried out to God. God heard their groaning and get this, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you know, we could go on and on and on. God remembers his people. God comforts his people. God wants to draw us to himself. He wants to conform us to his son who is perfected in suffering so that ultimately our trials, they are meant for our good and for his glory. And even when we don't understand the why of that, and we often don't, Even when we feel like God's abandoned me, we can always find hope in his promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. In our suffering, Jesus draws us to himself. And when we come to him, we find him to be gentle and humble in heart. And in him, we will find rest for our souls. I want to wrap it up this morning with a quote from the Prince of Preachers. That's Charles Spurgeon. He was an English preacher. And Spurgeon experienced much affliction and much suffering in his own life. And this quote is from the last few sentences of the last sermon that Spurgeon ever preached. It was only a few months before his death. And he said this of Jesus. This is on a slide, Becca, if you can put that up. He said this of Jesus. 
He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there's anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish, and super abundant in love, you will always find it in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love displayed in your obedient Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered more for us, who bore the weight of the sins of the world. We can barely even understand what that means, but we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the freedom of forgiveness. Help us to walk in Christ, to trust in him, to run to him, to find life in him. We ask it in his name. Amen.